Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the 4Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusek, And in this very special spur-of-the-moment emergency pod post-2021 U.S. Open, I'm joined by Adam Shupak. We are both still here in San Diego. John Rahm has just won the U.S. Open. And Adam, that was exhausting just to watch. That was one of the more entertaining U.S. Opens I think I've seen in a long time. Once it sort of got going. what uh, You were out there all day following the leaders. Tell me about your day. Yeah, I mean, say what you want about Tory, but... It has done, you know, it is two for two. It's batting a 1,000 with really quality finishes in the two times it's hosted the U.S. Open. This was some great stuff today. I mean, I, I was out there, but I didn't know where to go. Like, my head was spinning. I'm trying to look at the leaderboard to figure out where should I be watching because so many things were happening. So many people had a chance, and it kind of had a little bit of a – of a PGA championship at TPC Harding Park last year where there were just so many people you're waiting for someone to kind of grab it and, and and claim this one for their for themselves and it, and really Rom did it. I mean what he did coming home, the back nine that he played uh, bogey free from uh on the second nine and, and the birdie birdie finish was just just phenomenal. He won it, you know, Louis Ousazen said he played pretty good but he didn't play good enough. It was it was studly kind of stuff. It was at one point I feel bad sort of saying this, but you you had a lot of star players that were in that three under, two under, one under, even even par. And I didn't think that anybody who was maybe the one unders and the even par guys. I know that you know uh, Dustin Johnson was in that group. Colin Morikawa was there. I just thought it was too much ground for them to make up. I didn't think that all three of the leaders, whether it was going to be Russell Henley, Mackenzie Hughes, Louis Oosthuizen. All three of them weren't going to totally back up. I've sort of figured that Louis Oosthuizen was going to stick around. And I didn't think that he was going to go out and maybe shoot 65 and basically just like put everybody away. But but one of those guys was going to stick. And then you had Bryson and we had Rory. And we'll get to everybody. Um, and I figured one of the two of them was probably going to make a move. I, I wasn't anticipating a whole lot from Brooks. But I'm like, it, we're, we're probably going to get some chalk that's going to move up here. And lo and behold... Mackenzie Hughes comes back to earth a little bit. Um, it was a tough day for Russell Henley out there. And I don't know if the stage was too big for him or not. We can get into that. I think we got exactly what we expected from Louis, which was very steady, a really bad time to to miss a drive left when, when he went over there. And, and um, obviously, uh, Rahm is, is making his move towards the end of, with the, the birdie birdie finishes you alluded to. Um, when you were walking with the crowds, one of the things that I noticed Saturday the, the crowds on Thursday and Friday were rather subdued. There, there, were, there were plenty of people out there, but we didn't hear the roars. We didn't hear stuff going on. Saturday, we started to notice it. What, what was the atmosphere on the golf course like as you were following the leaders and trying to get a feel for everything on Sunday? Yeah, I had a good friend of mine out there, and so he did not have the inside-the-ropes uh, pass that I do, so I was watching with him, and I got to say, it was really difficult I felt like I was at the Masters, <laughs> where it was really hard to get around. Every once in a while, I'd be like, I'm going to go inside the ropes. I'll find you in a little while. But it was there was a lot of energy, and, and I think people were really, you know, there was, there was the whole, got people continuing to heckle 
uh, Bryson calling him Brooksy and, and, and all that stuff. It seemed like Kepka was having a lot of fun with the crowd. I, 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 he didn't seem as focused actually um, as I expected him to be. And, and then it was really difficult to try to watch. I think people really wanted Rory and Rom, those seem to be the two. And and the other takeaway was this might have been the smallest crowd for the final group in the in the last fifty years at the, oh, at the U.S. Open, considering yeah. we had smaller crowds because of COVID to begin with, and then there were not a lot of people uh, watching. You know, Mackenzie Hughes and and I was and told Louis. I was told by some USGA officials at the beginning of the week when I asked about crowd size because usually they don't give you an official number. I mean, it's one of those things where like you know they're we're sold out or we're not, but they're sometimes trepidatious about giving out numbers. And I was told that if you combine all the players and the caddies and the tournament officials, the media, and then the people that they sold tickets to who were going to be coming onto site, it was going to be less than 10,000. And that feels like it was about right. I think that we were around 10,000. And it's difficult to gauge because Harding Park, as you and I talked about earlier, it's a big track. It's just such a big spread out. The two nines are really separated. If you're out at hole number six or seven, you're nowhere near number 10. Like things just veer out into these peninsulas of land. And so people get spread out. And I agree that there there was not a lot of allure for the Mackenzie Hughes and Louis Oosthuizen pairing. And when you had right in front of them, big stars, major champions. And when those guys start to make some moves, we get some early firepower from Brooks Kepka. We see Colin Morikawa go out, make birdies early. The whole number one guys were able to make birdies on. And it seemed like people were ready to go out here. Um, I think numerically you're right. It's going to be the smallest one, obviously, God willing, that we're ever going to have. Again, we're not going to get such small crowds. I think Brookline... The USGA is ready to blow the roof off the place. They 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 clearly want to have a big U.S. Open. Um, how much do you think the crowd played into the the play that we saw? I mean, we we went through last year at the U.S. Open. Um, I can tell you, being at Wingfoot, it still sort of felt eerie. It was there was a lot of energy out there amongst the players, but they had to create it themselves. And players like Roy McIlroy have talked about the fact that they struggled at times with that. It felt like glori- you know glorified exhibitions. This one felt like it was pretty big. Now, I wasn't at the PGA Championship, but how much do you think the crowd affected the players, not just creating atmosphere? Yeah, I'm, as you start saying it, I'm thinking it maybe was a big factor because two players who really collapsed and, and surprised me were guys that won majors without fans. DeChambeau at Wingfoot and Morikawa you know, at the PGA at Harding Park, and both of them... Just, uh, I don't know, you know, they, they had some really uncharacteristic golf shots. I think it was, I mean, both of them are kicking themselves right now because, I mean, DeChambeau had the lead at the turn. A one-stroke lead, he's five under, and we can get into it in a little while, but just a total blow-up on the back nine and, and shoot 77. I, I did not see him folding like that. And then, and and, and with some really ugly shots, and, and Morikawa... I mean, had an incredible turnaround. He was he was as many as five over, and you know, early in his in his second round, and and just stormed back, played great golf, and uh, and it was he was there. He was four under. He was one back, and um, he had a lot of holes left, and, and he you know he he made some really bad bad plays. So, so do, you, play. do you think the I, fact I, that they're playing in front of crowds? I think especially Morikawa because I mean his rookie year. He starts and he comes into basically, you know, what, halfway through the 2019 season. I remember he came out and I think he had a couple of events before he showed up 
at at, uh, at Travelers because I'm always pimping out my my hometown tournament. Um, but it's him and Wolf and Hovland and Justin Saw, all four of whom played in this event. Um, three of the four have now won PGA Tour events, and and Morikawa has won a major, but but without fans. And then he goes through all of 2020, just like everybody does, which is a terrible, weird year. And as you said, like you know, he wins a major with no fans, nobody. Um, I think that a lot of experienced players would tell you that, like, no, we don't want to put an asterisk next to that that major, and certainly I don't think we deserve to. He he deserves that, or DeChambeau doesn't deserve that. But it is different out there, and I'll tell you what, like, as, as soon as we get a full crowd you know, major championship or a full crowd Ryder Cup, guys who have been on tour for a year, two years, and really haven't felt that, they're going to feel it. I agree with you, I think, in a big way. Nerves and pressure got to both of those guys. That's the reason they didn't hold the trophy at the end of the day. And maybe maybe it was a little easier when they won their majors without any without crowds out there. Now, be honest for a second. At the beginning of the day, who did you think was going to end up winning the U.S. Open? I thought it would be one of three people. Um, I, Rory was kind of my pick, um, all week. And then, and I really liked the way he had played on Saturday. Yeah, I agree. And, and then I thought, uh, I thought Rom, like I liked what, what he had been doing all week too. And then DeChambeau just seemed like it was working. He was, he was doing the bomb and gouge and he only hit five fairways on yeah. Saturday and it didn't matter. And he there he was. The field and greens there, and regulation. There, there he was. I, I asked because the same thing for the most part. I, I thought it was going to probably be one of those three. I, I I should respect Louis' game more, but he's become, and you and I have talked about this a little bit with Jim Furyk, where eventually some players become more famous and more notable for what they don't win than what they do. I mean, Louis has yet to win a PGA Tour event aside from his British Open in 2010. And he's had, I think it is now, six either runner-up or tied for runner-up finishes in majors, which is a tremendous accomplishment. But you're starting to get into that like thing where you're becoming more famous for what you don't win and for being there but not getting it done. I mean, he's a great player, and I think he's a super guy, and he's total class with the tweet that he put out immediately afterwards saying, congratulations to John, happy Father's Day, which is which is awesome. I think it's totally great. Um there was an, a feeling almost of inevitability that I had, though, watching DeChambeau on the front, not playing well, yet making pars. He birdies. I think it was six. I know he had a birdie on eight when he almost basically made a hole-in-one. And as I wrote in golfweek.com, there's a win probability tool that's on the USGA's leaderboard. And I was watching that, and all of a sudden it spiked, and he had a 33% chance to win. And for people playing at home... If you're on the front nine of a major championship on a Sunday and all of a sudden like the win probability thing says you're over 30%, you're looking really good. It's based on lots of different stuff, but like he's looking good. And then to see him spit the bit and in reading his post-round press conference and seeing his body language going throughout the round, I was shocked at him. I was absolutely amazed that it went that bad for him that quick. He shot 44 on the back. It was laughable. Um as I, as I wrote in Golf Week, he to, you know, basically tried to play it off as, I just had bad luck. I didn't hit it good all week. I had bad luck. How much do you think players BS you know, immediately after tournaments when things don't go their way, like that self-defense mechanisms kick in and you get a player who, who just can't get out of there fast enough, has to do the media stuff, and they're already creating the shell in the cocoon. That, that happens a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think last week, Chesson Hadley opened up a vein about about how he he didn't know where the ball was going on the planet and just how he kind of threw up all over himself. But yeah, I think some guys uh, they don't want to they don't want to really 
talk too much about it. And, you know, I guess in some event, in some ways, like you think about Jack Nicholas, he could tell you exactly what happened, the eight iron he hit at the 19, you know, yeah, 62 pick a tournament, US right? yeah, Open. Pick a tournament. Uh, but if you ask him about the putty missed that, you know, kept him out of a playoff, he, he, he can't, he doesn't even remember it happened. Yeah. So were you surprised that it goes that bad for DeChambeau? Because to me, it just felt like after the first day when he really wasn't a factor and I, and I walked a little bit with him, he was paired up and grouped. Um, let's see here. He was with uh, Masters champion Hideki Matsuyama and they're out there playing and Bryson doesn't look to have it. And I'm like, oh, maybe it's going to happen. But there's just this slow, steady, like, comeback. And the lead never got – no one in this tournament ever got to seven under par. Um, the lead got to five under par and briefly went to six here and there. Basically stayed there. I mean, if you were, if you were there, you were in the mix. Um, to, to me, I had this feeling that, that he was going to be the one. And wouldn't that have been a thing? You know, do you think that the, the back and forth of Brooksy – stuff to him and the Bryson stuff to Brooks Kepka. How much, if at all, do you think that plays into his performance this week? Or do you think that at this point that is all, at least that part of it is all water under the bridge? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that played too much into it after. I, I don't know what, I didn't watch him enough on, in the first round to know what went wrong that day. But yeah, it was impressive how he battled back. And, and it's just, I think, you know, his comments afterwards were like, He's okay with this. He's already won this major before. But you know what? I think he's gonna he's gonna think back and be like, man, I had this was in my grasp. I had I had one arm, I had one hand around it. Yep. I was gonna have it for a, another year. And it, yeah. not many guys go back to back. That that's a quite a feat to do that. He put up a great effort, but um, once it fell apart, it it just the cards crumbled. So let's talk about the winner, um, John Rom. You and I did a podcast on Monday. And we talked about a lot of different players, one of whom was John Rahm. And I have to raise my hand and say I was never going to pick John Rahm to win a major because I thought that his temper and his temperament in tough situations was going to be holding him back. I think we both agree that from a talent standpoint, he's he's amongst the elite players in the Five game. Five-tool guy. He's, he's, got it, he's got it all. He just had not been able to put together – um, four rounds between the ears that would keep him in here. And I, my thinking was, prove me wrong, basically. Um, he proved me wrong, didn't he? I mean, he was he was sensational, and, and mentally to make those putts on 17 and 18 was pretty damn impressive, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, he's still I – I watched him a lot and wrote about his performance on uh, on Friday, and, and he was, you know, he was near blowing up. It almost got away. He made some really clutch putts. He did what you got to do at a U.S. Open. He kept the round together, made some pars where he he was struggling with his with his swing for a bit, and you know that fiery temper was coming out. And I thought this he's about to lose it, and he held it together. And, and funny enough, I asked him afterwards. Say, you asked him about this. Yeah, I'm like, how did you do that? How did you keep it together? How did you have the temperament at a U.S. Open? The, you know, the most mentally taxing event. And he's like. How much longer are we gonna have to? Am I how am I, am I gonna always have to answer this question? And I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> until until yeah, you prove us wrong, wrong, then answer it. Uh, and, and you know, it was interesting talking to his wife Kelly afterwards. She said that that he, she thinks he's he's misunderstood. That he's you know, uh, Phil Mickelson called him a gentle giant. And, and I saw that. Yeah. And uh, you know, just that he's got a he he is a different player off the he's a different person. I think off the golf course and. You know, she's her point was that people 
confuse his his anger. And she says that's passion, and he needs to play with the emotions. When he when he's tried not to, he's not being himself, and it doesn't really work. Interestingly, in the press conference, John made the point that he is trying really hard now because he's seen some of the things he does. He's got a son now, and he yeah, wants there it is. He wants to be a good role model for his son. There it is. And, and and that's something that I think is is a real deal. I mean, I think it's one thing when you're 23, 24, 25 years old and you answer to nobody. You're, you're not trying necessarily to be a bad person, but you're not thinking in terms of perspective. And with age and with experience, both good and bad, like you get different perspective. And John is somebody who, you know, it, it's amazing that he's achieved as much as he has. It feels like he's been around for a long, long time. And he hasn't. In he's the 26. Grand, in the grand scheme of things, like, you know, he's he's still relatively new. He just shot into the top 10 and became a major force that we all took seriously so fast, so fast. And the same thing with Morikawa, who is obviously even younger. Um, and, and he's going to mature as a person. Now, as a, as a father, I think that's going to accelerate it. And... You know, I'm going to get to a couple other questions about what this what this win you think I think is going to mean for him. But um, this is going to be also a really popular win in the clubhouse. Like, there's there are some people that are I think universally liked and respected, um, and a lot of people are respected, not necessarily liked. Everybody likes John Rahm. I've never heard somebody say good negative or bad words about him. He was popular on the European Ryder Cup team; they loved him. He's you know went what he's Arizona State. Um, you know, Phil Mickelson is sitting there, you know, watching him hit balls. Um, he's a Scottsdale guy, married in America. He's everybody likes this guy. This is gonna be a popular win, isn't it? Yeah, to me, you know, I just want to go back to one thing. We we did that podcast on on Monday before he did his press conference. I don't know if it was later that day or Tuesday, but at, I was really impressed with. He just he just showed a bit of maturity. He just he was, handled it. He was so Monday well. with the COVID stuff. I, I, yeah, yeah. I don't know, you know. Maybe he's coached a little bit, and and but whatever. I, I think overall, we saw some of the real John Rom, how he really felt, and and how he, I think he handled a really tough situation with Grace, and he said uh, on Sunday, "I'm a big believer in karma," and he just felt that he was kind of owed one, and he went out there and he said he just felt he believed this was his day, and he just. He just sees the day. I mean, he just he just said this this one's for me. I I love this place. I love Tory. I've won here before. He and his he proposed to his wife here. Yeah, he they, they, they love got married in Del Mar. I mean, yeah. he just he's got so much. There were so many good positive vibes at this place. This to me was the one U.S. Open golf course because I think the U.S. Open was going to be the toughest one for him to win. Which is funny because his coach in college now you know Phil Mickelson's caddy Tim Mickelson. Said this is going to be the one you're going to win first. He thought Rom was going to be a U.S. Open guy, but I agree. Like I, I saw him as a PGA Championship kind of a player, somebody who was going to go to like a souped-up PGA Tour event and blitz the field. But but please continue because I, I I you know it's he played amazingly and he's also showed that maturity. Yeah, you know he he is a guy who could he he just really hit a lot of fairways and greens today, which was which what you need to do at he U.S. Opens. I think that's why Tim Mickelson thought this would be a good one for him. I, I kind of always thought maybe more masters because he can make so many birdies and be a little volatile. 
Um, it was interesting. Like I meant to ask him this during the press conference, but it got so into the COVID stuff that I kind of forgot or didn't get a chance to, to ask the question. But I wanted, I was kind of curious what he would have said to why is no Spaniard ever won the U.S. Open? And I didn't realize this until I, I read one of the like PR notes, but no Spaniard have, had ever won any USGA championship until today. That's weird. I know. <laughs> I mean, that's, I, I would have thought certainly either Seve or Jose Maria or Fable, Sergio at some point would have won something. But I didn't. I had no idea that's true. So, John Rahm is now a major champion. He wins the U.S. Open. Um, I think it's going to, like I said, it's going to be a popular win. People are going to be really excited about this. Are, is this going to be, do you think, and we're, you know, however long into this podcast, the first, now that the ice is broken, is this going to be... Something it's like all of a sudden, okay, there's now he's now number one in the world. He's won a major, he's won multiple PGA tour events, he's been to Ryder Cup. What's what's the ceiling now for John Rahm? What do, what are we thinking? Do we give him a little bit of, of a bone on the rest of twenty twenty one to maybe coast on this a little bit, which I am fine with because the win, winning a US Open, your first major, is a life changing event. You are now immortal. Um, what do we think for the rest of this year and then what how do we need to reset the ceiling for Rahm? I, I think um I think he's going to be number. I think he's going to be in the number one conversation for about the next decade. I don't know. I'm not saying he's going to hold it for five year span like a tiger, but he will be in and out of it maybe. And and I think you know this is a guy with multiple majors and, and you know Tim Mickelson, obviously big supporter of his, says this this is a guy who could really win the career Grand Slam. He thinks he's going to win them all and yeah, he very well could. But come on, that's a really tough thing to do. So I'm not I'm not a sure I'm sold on that just yet. But I also think that, you know, just having had a baby, this was like a good window to win this like kind of early. I feel like, you know, the next year or so becoming a father may take a little bit of a priority over his golf, which career. is fine. Yeah. He's going to learn. To, he's going to be adjusting to how to, how to practice a little less and spend time with his son and the different demands on his life. And, and I think that that might be the only thing that slows him down from being like a force. I just thought of somebody who's not going to be happy that John Rahm won the U.S. Open. You know who that is? S- Steve Stricker. Because John Rahm is going to be a problem. I agree. I think Rahm is going to be in the conversation and near the very top of the world rankings for a decade easy. Barring major injury, um, he, he has the modern game. He has plenty of confidence. He has plenty of skill. Um, he is going to be a handful in Ryder Cup. I mean, you forget, like, he already has some Ryder Cup experience. He won in Paris. He is not going to be intimidated by by the stage. Put him against whoever you want. Hand him to JT. Give him to, to Patrick Reed if he's on the team. Give him to Brooks. I, I think he will relish any challenge that's put out there, and I think that he is the next Spanish, you know, Team Europe player that Americans wish that they had on the American team. I, he is, he is going to be an absolute handful. Um, who are some players, or give me a player that um, that surprised you this week with how well they did? We had a bunch of big name players that, that sort of came up, um, you know, obviously. But but who are some of the players, or can you think of anybody that off the top of your head that you you really like what you had a chance to see see from them? Well, the one guy that jumps to mind is Matt Wolf, because I had I had zero expectations. I did not think there was much of a chance of him making the cut. I was just happy that he showed up this week after, you know, taking his sabbatical. And so, 
you know, he shot 74 on Sunday and finished T15. But you know, this was a this was like a victory. This was like a victory for him because he, it, he needed to come back out and show his face and talk about what he's been going through. And I think, I think he did a great job. And I think he's. I mean, I don't know enough about what he's really going through, but right. I feel like this was a really positive step. He's trying to just. He, he seemed like he was in good spirits, and and it, it was just impressive that a guy could, you know barely touch a club for yeah. five weeks and have been in such a bad, you know, place headwise and, and, and be in the, the, you know, first page of the leaderboard for, for the first three days. I thought it was really interesting and very commendable that Bubba Watson, you know, evidently reached out to him and basically said, look, everything you're going through, I've been through and more. Um, I've won money. I've lost money. I've, you know, started businesses. I've failed at businesses. He's been very candid about his own, anxieties um his his own you know basically like mental outlook on life which got pretty dark you know he lost a whole bunch of weight 25 or 30 pounds to the point where like he won't get on the scale anymore he's in a much better place um he said he's far away from bottom but he's not near the top he's he's happy you know that that he and his wife are together they've got their kids but he demonstrated that he has a lot more perspective and he wants matthew wolf to know that he Bubba Watson is there whenever he wants to talk, whenever that happens to be. And I think that's an amazingly healthy and an admirable thing. Whether Wolf takes him up on that or not is none of our damn business. You know, th- those are conversations because, like, they're people. And just because they can hit a golf ball and we see them on television um, doesn't necessarily give us the right to go into their psyche. And I think that athlete um, mental health is certainly something that's come to the fore, certainly over the last couple months. Um and it's a, it's a really healthy conversation. It's It can be a lonely life for a lot of these guys. I mean, there was a picture that came out in social media of Victor Hovland going through a hotel a couple of weeks ago that was on social media. And here's this kid who's in his early 20s. He's got this big golf bag, and he's in some, you know, Ritz-Carlton. or a Kiowa. He, it, it, Kiowa. It was a Kiowa. And it's this gorgeous place and he's walking by himself and like what the hell is he going to do he hits golf balls for a living but he's not going out to dinner with his friends he's not doing all this stuff and it's it's a very strange life and I'm not the least bit surprised that there are guys who have difficulty handling it Wolf has got talent and when he gets himself into a good mental place I wish him nothing but the best I he'll be fascinating to watch and I I can't wait seeing him but I agree that one's good I didn't see any of the Harris English stuff I'm going to raise my hand and say that I'm taking a look at the leaderboard and whether it was when I was out on the golf course, you know, early in the week and then the, you know, through the week and stuff like that, Harris English goes out, shoots 72, 70, 71, 68. And he was never seen by anybody. Like I never saw this guy. Yeah, and then right. all of a sudden, like there he is solo third at a U.S. open. Birdie three of the last five and uh, had to wait around a little while to see. Could have been in, thought for a little while. It might be even a playoff. Um, so, you know, some wild stuff there. One, one more big winner. Yeah. Guido Migliozzi going to we'll Augusta. We'll see you in April, Guido. <laughs> so there's a lot of different ways to get into the Masters, folks. And for those of you who may not be aware, if you T4 or better at any of the other major championships, that punches your golden ticket and you get an invite by tradition to play in the following year's Masters. So from Italy, we had three Italians um, who made the cut this year. Guido makes the cut and then both of the Molinari brothers make the cut, which is kind of cool. Um, and yeah, so then looking around also at the top of the leaderboard, um, Brendan Grace, you know, the broadcast didn't show a heck of a lot of him. Paul Casey had it going again early today, um, and then let it go down towards the end, but he ends up 
still having a good finish there at T7. What do we think of the week for Xander Shoffley? Because that's one of the people that I picked to be a winner, and it just never got going for Xander. Um, how much of his golf, if at all, did you see, and, and what do you think he takes away from this week? Yeah, I think he is going to – He's going to feel like it was a missed opportunity because he got off to a good start. I I was a little concerned that playing with Phil and just all that hoopla around him might might be difficult, but he played very well in the first round. And I thought, okay. I think the thing, you know, it was a risk, and I think it backfired switching his putting. He he ranked, he's ninth in strokes gained putting, and he changes, changes to the... You know that was he's, he's got this arm lock putter after basically coming out and saying to everybody that he thinks the arm lock should be banned that he considered it anchoring but until they do something about it he's just going to go ahead and and do it with everybody until they make him stop. And I don't know how he, I didn't look enough to see how he putted on Sunday but he was his putting was what held him back the first 3 days and and it may, you know it was a it was a gamble and I think that one backfired for him. So now the next major championship is going to end up being um, the British Open, which just had an announcement, which was pretty amazing, that uh, they're looking to have, is it 35,000 people? 32,000 people at Royal St. George um, for the British Open championship. If we recant, or I should say, like, you know, go back through the Masters, we get Hideki Matsuyama, fantastic, great win, first Japanese player uh, to win a Masters. Then we get Phil Mickelson at the PGA Championship. Now we get this really popular one with John Rahm. Um, we get a little bit of a break. We've got about a month, but it's going to come quicker than we know. A couple of the big guys are going to be playing in Hartford, but most players are going to take the next week or two, then head over to the Scottish, and then they're going to be playing that. Um, what, if anything, do, do we expect from the British Open coming out of this? Because all of a sudden we've had three amazing championships. That's going to be the first one where we're going to get Big crowds. Um, we talked about the effective crowds here, but the uh, the British Open's got a pretty tough act to follow, doesn't it? Considering what we've had for the first three majors. Yeah, yeah. This has been a good, pretty good run so far this season, and uh, you 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 probably know that venue better than me, having been there before. But I just like that so many of our top players are playing really well, and I feel like you know I'm not sure why Rory did, and Brooks kind of the two of them, you know, they were. They were right there. It was there for the taking, and and neither of them came up, in you know, big enough to to add you know to win. They were both trying to win their fifth major, but there are a lot of guys playing some really good golf right now. So right. Uh, I expect it to be a pretty crowded leaderboard again. Now, before we sign off, um, let's talk a little bit about Tory Pines specifically. Um, we know the U.S. Open venues through twenty twenty seven. Um, you and I speculated that you know we might get an announcement this week uh, about future venues. We we thought, oh, maybe they'll say that they're going to come back to here. Maybe they're going to extend that. We did not get any of that kind of news. In fact, um, John Bodenhammer came out on Wednesday during the USGA's press conference and said, you know, there are a lot of things in the works, but we have nothing to announce now. Um, buckle up is what he said. Buckle up, which <laughs> I, yeah, the last time somebody from the USGA said buckle up was was never. Um, do we think that we come back? Should, well, let me say, should we come back to Torrey Pines for U.S. Open? I think so. I think based on how how well it's gone both times, and and really like, so I, I have mixed the fact that the players I think liked it so much and universally were praising the setup and this and that. To me, I don't love it in the sense that it does tend to favor the long hitters. I don't. I'm not a big fan of that. 
And, and I don't like that really there were too many people under par and they turned it into a par 71 to, to, which also kind of suppressed that too, too many, I, you know, there was no, there, it wasn't a, a, a torture chamber out there. You didn't, was, you didn't get enough blood. Just go ahead and say blood. it. You didn't have enough blood. There was see some blood at the U.S. Open. See, you um, know, I put and, this out there. I'm gonna, sorry. Go and, ahead. And, and, and my last point about Tory is 18 is e- a little too, too easy. easy, it's too easy. Of a finishing hole. It's too easy. Um, but it, but it's created some great drama. So you there know, was, it, it, it it's worked. And and the weather. There's so many. There's so many positives here. That so I so think if you were if, so if you were running it, you would you would say yes. Let's come back. Yeah, I mean. It, once once every 12 years, sure. Okay, so if we're going to establish a rota, it's one of those like, Torrey Pines is one of like the fill-in every 10, 12 years, but it's not it's not one of the Elite Eight, if we're going to sort of yeah, say something like that. I think so. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I think that, it, that, that Torrey Pines fills a need for the USGA that is, we need to have a West Coast US Open that's not Pebble Beach. Now, you and I talked about Chambers Bay and they're redoing the greens. Um, that, I think, from talking to some players this week and just listening to people talking about it, is, is not going to be happening anytime soon. Maybe, but but it, I haven't heard anybody say, oh, I've got, you know, Chambers is going to happen. I haven't heard that. I think Los Angeles Country Club in a couple of years is a hope that, yes, I think the USGA would love to have a US Open in Los Angeles. I think that would be hugely popular if they've can get that U.S. Open in a couple of years, two years from now, to come off well, then you could theoretically have three West Coast U.S. Open venues with Pebble, LACC, in either Torrey Pines or Olympic, um, which just hosted the U.S. Women's Open. And I, I think we're going to start to see a U.S. Open and U.S. Women's Open rota that will be matching. The women are going to go where the men are going to be, not necessarily playing them back-to-back like we have it at Pinehurst in 14, but I, I think – they're going to start going to the same courses. Um, I just have a feeling the USGA is doing, and, and I fully support this. They're really working hard to elevate the positioning of the U.S. Women's Open in golf, the, the, the whole thing golf. And golf courses for the U.S. Women Open matter. Uh, I've talked with Beth Ann Nichols about this at length. And, you know, uh, there, there are some places that just – would help the women's game immensely. And Olympic is one of them. If the women were to come, they're going to Pebble Beach. Um, Pinehurst helps them. If if the women were to be able to go to Winged Foot, it'd be amazing. I think it'd be a fantastic thing for women's golf. I don't know the women coming to Torrey Pines helps them. Maybe it does. I, I don't know. Um, but we shall see. So any, any you know, what do you got? Uh, well, other thing I don't like about coming to Torrey is it's a same, I feel the same way about PGAs at Quail Hollow. I just don't like when they go to the venue that the PG we see every. So, what, every but what year. about Pebble Beach then? Pebble special. Pebble is pretty special, and it and it plays so differently mm-hmm. in June versus like totally. Yeah, they don't really set it up very di- so because so of the amateurs. Just, just to sort of like just put this in there, so Tory Pines doesn't play different enough, even under U.S. Open, you know, pressure, if you will, or U.S. Open conditions. As it does in January, we're usually here at the end of January. It's soft, it's long, it's wet. Not enough of a difference for you. Uh, I don't think so. Okay, that's fair. I mean, it, it played. It, it definitely plays. It plays somewhat differently. But I, I, I think the, think the 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 firmness and the speed of the greens to me makes a big difference. I, I think that the typically in January, guys are throwing darts into the greens at Torrey. Like the ball is going to hit and sometimes overspin, or at least it's going to stop most of the time. 
that wasn't happening certainly by like Saturday. Those greens were starting to get a little bit crispy. You could hear the thump. It was getting firm. It wasn't, thankfully, Shinnecock. It wasn't the disaster that we had many years ago at, at, Olympi- at Olympic and some other places. Um, those those greens played to, to me quite a bit differently. So that was maybe why I don't feel quite as strongly about it. But I, but I agree. Like You want to go to unique places. And we come to Torrey Pines every year. It doesn't have that cachet. Um, and Pebble Beach is special. So I'll, I'll throw you on that one. You're, you're good with that. Don't worry about that. Um, what's going to be your final takeaway? When you, when you think back and, uh, and you're bouncing your daughter on your knee or your granddaughter and your whatever, you know, wh- what are you going to remember most and first about this week? Just how tight it was and how awesome the leaderboard was and just that feeling of like, who, who's going who's gonna to grab this one by the throat? Because it was, there were so many guys had a chance – um, it's really fun when it's like that, when, when you don't know who, who's going to do it and you're sitting there waiting to see who's going who's gonna to make that real late push. And it was John Rahm. And I think we might be, I might be telling my granddaughter that I saw the first of, of you yeah. know, six or eight by him. I, I wouldn't be the least surprised. I think, yeah, you, you remember – I will remember John holding up uh, the baby, his wife being out there on the practice screen when Ustazen does not pitch in for Eagle and therefore John Rahm is the winner. Um, that is, that's the Disney stuff. That's the storybook ending the, that, that everybody loves. It's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, by the way. And uh, it's, it's, it was great. It was a great story. You can, you're allowed to be a little bit mushy about these kind of things. And I, I loved that. I thought he played great. He's, he deserved to win. Um, we didn't get the pretty sunsets. We didn't get any of that kind of stuff. The Marine layer was in and out, but um, I will remember that, that San Diego is a beautiful place. It looks great on TV almost all the time. And yeah, I think this we'll look back and be like, yeah, the first one was Tori in twenty one and Rom was really, really good. Adam, thank you very much for uh for coming on the Ford Press. Always. Thank you. Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.